Hi everyone, welcome to the Knowledge Pursuit Auxiliary Podcast. In today's episode, I will be talking about the natural sciences and the benefits, limitations, and implications. So let's get right in. So before we start talking about the natural sciences, I think I will first make a differentiation between the natural sciences, human sciences, and pseudosciences. And there is a big difference between the three. To start off with, the natural sciences talk about reality and what's going on around us, whereas the human sciences focus more on people, which is why they're called the human sciences. And lastly, the pseudosciences tend to be fake. And the word pseudo actually means fake, so in essence they are fake sciences. And the big difference between natural sciences and pseudosciences is the aspect of hypotheses, and when you hypothesize. And when the pseudosciences try to make a hypothesis, one aspect of them all the time is that they are vague. They don't really predict. They don't predict accurately or precisely what's going to happen. They just say, "Tomorrow you'll run into an encounter that will shock you for the rest of your life." Now, that's not really telling you what it is. It's just telling you an aspect of an incident that will happen. So it's clearly not predicting. It's just. Speculating something that fits in such a broad category that it's not really a prediction, and it's super vague. The second aspect of the differences between the hypotheses of the natural sciences and the pseudosciences is exceptions. So, in the case of natural sciences, when a hypothesis runs into counterexamples or evidence that dis disproves their stance, the hypothesis itself is refuted or it is changed. But in the case of the pseudosciences, what happens is the hypothesis makes an exception. So, for example, in the case of astrology, I am—I think I'm a Leo because I was born in August. Yeah, August. So it's a Leo, but. In that case, they might say, "Oh, a Leo is charismatic, or they're very extroverted, and they're very valiant." But I might not be valiant, so they might—the people who believe in astrology or study it—they might say, "Well, you're an exception because you happen to be such, such, such." So, in the case of pseudosciences, they're making an exception, and that's not hard science because if you make too many ad hoc, which means for this ad hoc exceptions, what you're doing is you're diverting. From your actual hypothesis, and the hypothesis itself loses weight. And now that we have a clear understanding between the differences of pseudosciences, human sciences, and natural sciences, I think I'll talk about natural sciences more in depth. So the natural sciences, similar to the human sciences, use something known as the scientific method. And the scientific method itself involves, excuse me, five steps. It is observation, hypothesis, experiment. Law and theory, and these five steps usually have certain problems, but I'll get into it with each part. But first, let's focus on the scientific method itself. And the scientific method itself has to do with four aspects. Well, excuse me, three aspects. And those aspects are controllability, measurability, and repeatability. And that is what helps to move natural sciences forward. And when you talk about controllability, which is the first aspect of the scientific method, it means you control the environment or the experiment you're carrying out, as well as the observation and the hypothesis. And that means that it can be understood tersely, and it focuses it focuses in on reality very well. And it also gives the 
person who is looking at the experiment afterward, who are peers, they are able to understand the experiment better, and they are able to say this was controlled well, and it is, it is standing up to a standard, or it's up to a standard that we all agree on, and that's controllability. The second one, which is measurability, allows for precision in an experiment, and this is very good, especially in the case of medicine, because if you take a certain medicine, for example, and you take the wrong amount, then that could lead to disastrous side effects. So it's good to have measurability that's precise, especially in the case of medicine and experiments in medicine. The third and final aspect, which is repeatability, is very important because when you do an experiment and the experiment needs to be understood and possibly repeated to test if the experiment itself was good or not, there has to be repeatability. And here's an, this is one of the actual differences between pseudosciences and natural sciences, and on some or in some occasions, human sciences as well, because natural sciences are usually repeatable when it comes to their experiments, and they have to be repeatable, otherwise they won't be accepted by peers, and they will be thought of as fake or faked experiments, and that's not really natural sciences, that's just pseudosciences. And these three aspects really define the scientific method. But these three aspects I just talked about do help to make the scientific method good, but there are certain problems that we run into in each step, especially in observation, hypothesis, and experimentation. So starting with observation, there is the problem of expectations as well as the observer effect and expert team. So jumping into the first one, which is expectations, this happens when you expect something to be observed, and you, let's say you're observing a plant, and you expect the plant to grow up. So therefore, when it starts to grow in any way up, you think of that as helping what you want to see. In essence, when you look at, say, a cabbage that happens to be growing more outward, sideways, than really up, you might say, oh, well, it's grown up slightly, and it's not as much as sideways, but it's grown up. And if you look at a cabbage at all, you, I'm pretty sure if you've seen a real cabbage plant, you would say it grows equally out as well as up. Not a lot of plants do that. And I think there's pine trees out there that grow really up instead of sideways, but that's just because they're all year round and they have spines and, not spines, needles as leaves. But anyhow, the observer effect really has a lot to do with this too in which you look at the tools that you're observing instead of the actual object. So let's say you're measuring the temperature of a volcano, the magma in a volcano. I think that's dangerous, but let's just say you do that as a scientist. And you take a thermometer that hopefully will not melt when you uh, stab it into the magma that's really hot. And the thermometer itself says, say, 3000 degrees Celsius. But what you're looking at and observing is the thermometer. You're not really observing the magma, you're observing the thermometer because you're looking at that. And that's the problem with the observer effect, which is somewhat related to expectations. And the final problem, which is expert seeing, has to do with credentials. And it has a lot to do with education and a background in whatever natural science field you happen to be in. What this really implies is that you have to have some kind of background in order to deal with certain fields, say, the medical field. If you don't have a background in medicine, you can't really experiment in medicine because you don't really understand it, or you don't understand the basic concepts that are related to it. 
and that's what expert seeing is. And another problem about expert seeing is if you don't know how to use tools in a specific field. So let's say you don't know how to use a thermometer, but you want to measure the volcano. If you don't know how to use it, you can't measure the volcano temperature, and that's the problem with expert seeing. You have to have some credentials. Moving on to hypothesis, which is the second step of the scientific method, there's usually three problems with it too. The first one is known as background assumptions, the second one I'll talk about today is confirmation bias, and the third one is underdetermination. So starting with the first one, which is background assumptions, when you have a background assumption about a hypothesis, you tend to take that assumption into fact and apply it to your hypothesis. So I'll give an example about this. So let's say I don't real I assume that water, regardless of altitude, will always boil at 100 degrees Celsius. And that's that might be an informed assumption, but there's also the possibility that it's not true. But if I hypothesize based off that information, it's clearly going to be wrong because water does not always boil at 100 degrees Celsius at all altitudes. I think it gets less when you go up in the air or more up into the altitude, so that's something to take in mind. The second one, which is known as confirmation bias, is when you only look at evidence to support your claim, but you ignore all the other evidence that might contradict your hypothesis. And this can be problematic because it's not really moving science forward, it's just moving your own claims forward, and your own claims might be wrong. And in the case of natural sciences and most other ALKs, well, not mostly, but most AOKs out there, they happen to be in this state where they're pursuing truth. And if you're pursuing truth, you have to disregard what you want, because not necessarily what you want is the truth. And in, the, in this case where I'm talking about, I will only accept information or evidence to support my claim, my claim will probably not be true, because I just want to make myself look better, and that's not helping truth at all. The final a uh, dangerous aspect of a hypothesis is underdetermination. And this is really dangerous because what it implies is that most hypotheses out there are not unique. Well, they're not unique, but they aren't singular. And by this I mean when you observe, say, a rabbit eating a carrot, and it's really like it really is into that carrot and it ate that carrot, say, in 10 seconds, that observation could yield several different hypotheses. So the first hypothesis that could come from a carrot that was devoured by a rabbit in 10 seconds could be the carrot was, it tasted really good to the rabbit and it just loved that carrot. So another hypothesis that could have arised from that observation in which the carrot disappeared in 10 seconds is that the rabbit was really hungry and it just really wanted to eat, which is why it ate the carrot in under 10 seconds. Or another hypothesis, which is the third one could be that the rabbit really liked the carrot and was really hungry. So just with this example alone, multiple hypotheses can be created from the single observation. And that's a real big problem because when you try to have, or in the natural sciences really, you try to be precise. And if the hypothesis is not precise, you're not going to end up with a precise law or theory later on in the scientific method. So finally moving on to law and the problems of making laws in the natural sciences. The main problem we see with making laws is it runs into the same issues of inductive reasoning. And the issues that inductive reasoning has is it only uses information that we have at the moment and it's possible that it, it will run into exceptions of the law. So 
expanding more on that, when you make a law, for example, that all swans are white, the only reason you can make that law is because you've only observed white swans. But if you observe a black swan, which is an exception to the law that all swans are white, the law itself becomes flawed. So this is the main issue. You can only make a law based off information, information that you currently know, and it's a generalization. Which basically, a law is a generalization, which is the main issue. Taking into account all these problems of observation hypotheses and laws when making and using them, there has been several ways, or several ways have been thought of to move past these issues. So one way that has been thought up or thought out has or comes from the philosopher Karl Popper. So Karl Popper thought of a process known, in, known as falsification. And falsification is when you do something known as conjectures and refutation, or conjectures and refutations, excuse me. So a conjecture is a rough hypothesis or an idea or a claim. And a refutation is when you refuse it or you disprove it. So Karl Popper thought if you make hypotheses or observations or laws and you disprove them and make new ones in their place and you continue this process you're going to move science forward and in theory it works great because then you're you're getting rid of the bad parts and you're putting in good parts and, and making science better or the natural science is better but there are certain parts of this that don't really work as they are planned so let's say well when I say an example let's say there's a scientist out there let's say his name is Bob, and Bob finds evidence, for some reason, that the laws of physics are all wrong. In an experiment that he does with hypotheses and observations and laws and theories, he finds that the laws of physics, the, the laws of physics are completely wrong. They don't, they don't capture the aspect of, any aspect of reality in any position. Now, when that happens, when he comes to that conclusion, he's not likely to go to some a physics committee and say, you're all wrong, I have this evidence, you should change your laws and what you say. What's going to most likely happen is, he's going to look at his experiment and he's going to say, I probably did some wrong, uh, wrong parts in this, I probably observed it wrong, I probably calculated wrong, I probably made a wrong hypothesis, or my law is off, off center, or it's wrong, or it's just not correct in any way. And he's not going to accept the fact that the laws of physics, which he apparently disproved, are wrong. And this has a lot to do with the laws themselves, because when you look at a law, it has a lot of weight, because it's been proved multiple times usually. And this is a problem with falsification, it doesn't always happen with each individual science. There are cases, of course, where falsification has happened, and the individual, the individual scientists who have carried the falsification process out have been correct. One example is Darwin. When he was, when he came up with the theory of evolution, there was already a standing theory and law that said, not law, but there was a standing theory that said the Bible and what it said was correct, that the world came into being from God and every animal on earth was shaped in a certain way and it hasn't changed. And Darwin, he could have, he had really two options. One was to say that theory, which that the Bible is correct and all that in is written and is correct, is wrong, and my theory is correct, or what I have come to in my conclusion and what I have researched and what I have observed is wrong. And he went with the first option, which he said, that theory, the original theory that's been standing before my theory is wrong, my theory of evolution is correct. And nowadays we know that there's much more evidence to support the fact that evolution is the way science and not science, the way the world has come into being and the animals on this earth. So clearly there's good parts of falsification as well as bad parts. 
Now that I've discussed inductivism and falsificationism, which is the two types of scientific methods, or scientific ways of approaching reality, I will point out that I'm pretty sure a lot of listeners have realized now that scientists aren't always doing their job, and their main job is to be questioning things and question, critically analyzing what they see. And one person who pointed this out very nicely is Thomas Kuhn. And he pointed it out in three observations that he made. The first observation he made is that there are times when science jumps forward, and there are times when science is just standing still. By this, he meant that most other fields of uh, knowledge, such as the arts or literature, is taking steps forward. But in the case of science, it jumps forward and or it takes time when to revolutionize itself. And that's very important to keep in mind. The second observation he made is that scientists aren't always questioning. By this, he meant that scientists are... They take times when they question the theories and the overarching paradigms, and a paradigm is an overarching theory in a scientific field, which is why I said overarching paradigm, even though overarching is part of paradigm's definition. But anyhow, it's when scientists question paradigms and when they don't question paradigms. And that is closely linked to when scientists, or not scientists, the natural science moves forward and when natural science doesn't move forward. And the final observation that Thomas Kuhn made is that during times of scientific crisis, there is no real rational paradigm because in the scientific community, when there's a crisis where they can't decide between two paradigms, it's, that is when rationality goes out the window because the scientists are trying to fight each other tooth and nail to prove that their theory or their paradigm that they stand for is correct and the other one is wrong. And usually when you do that, there's no rationality because they're just trying to prove and trying to prove. And during that time, it's usually when uh, evidence is fabricated or observations are hastily made or hypotheses are not accurate or laws don't uh, reflect reality accurately. Well, I've talked about science and all the issues and most of the time science tries to move around all the problems that I just pointed out in this episode for, for various reasons. One is that it wants to be precise and it wants to accurately portray and reflect and observe reality, which is a good thing. And sometimes science moves beyond that and it helps to redefine values or it helps to keep uh, dogmatism in check. So by this, when I mean uh, it helps to redefine values, when we think of a scientist or what a good scientist should be, we think that a good scientist should be questioning or a good scientist should not be cruel to his subjects. For example, when he tests medicine, I think they use rabbits or monkeys. You shouldn't be cruel to the monkeys or zombies. You should be somewhat nice and give them some dignity. So in a sense, when we think about a good scientist, it helps to or it helps us to redefine what a good person should be. So science actually helps to create or sustain values because without ethics, what a scientist should do, we wouldn't know what a scientist is and we wouldn't understand what a good or a bad scientist is. So values in science helps to keep each other alive. And when I say that science also helps to keep dogmatism away, it's really in the core of science because when you think about the natural sciences, they're constantly questioning. That's what natural sciences are based off, as well as the human sciences. And there are instances when science does not do this. For example, when you think about scientism, where 
in scientism, it's the belief that science is the ultimate truth and it's the ultimate way to view reality. That means you completely buy into it and it becomes almost a religion because you're not questioning it, it's just dogmatic. So science helps to keep dogmatism at bay too. So, in conclusion, the natural sciences really do have a lot of benefits, but they also have a lot of limitations, which I explained. And it's a good idea to keep those limitations in mind, because if you don't keep that in mind, you're not really going to be able to move knowledge forward. But that's just one aspect of really all knowledge, as well as with the cousins of the natural sciences, the human sciences, which I actually will be talking about next time so if you feel like listening to it stick around and leave any comments or questions in the comments section of whatever platform you happen to be listening from and i hope to see you next time bye